Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 54. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. How are you, Christina? Just wonderful. Yeah, me too. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very excited today. Uh, we're going to go to another area in the healthcare galaxy. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman, and I will be uh, co-hosting uh, along with Christina as your medical guide as we search throughout the galaxy for optimal health. And today, uh, unlike most of the uh, episodes where we uh, deal with someone who's a specialist, we have in medicine and healing, we have a guest who's never been to medical school, not a doctor, not a specialist, and yet uh, she has done an outstanding and significant uh, addition and uh, gift. She's given gifts to our planet in terms of health and healing for all of our citizens. We're going to be introducing and talking with Marilyn Tam in just a moment. But before we do, uh, why don't you tell our global viewers how to get in touch with us? <laughs> well, if you are watching via your computer, um, if you have any questions or comments, just scroll down the screen a little bit and there'll be a comment box there. You can just type it in right there and click submit and it'll actually show up on my screen and I will share that with our guest or Dr. Wolman, of course. And if you would like to ask your question or comment personally, please feel free to dial into our conference line, which is 323-476-3672. Again, 323-476-3672. And the PIN number is 607-393-POUND, 607-393-POUND. And not to worry if you didn't have time to write that down, because as the show is going on, you'll see it up on the screen as well. So there we are. I, I would think that there is lots of questions today, because I'm very excited about this. Yeah, yeah me too. Marilyn Tam is a, an international speaker. She's an author, and we're going to be talking about her newest book, The Happiness Choice. She's a consultant to corporations, institutions, and governments. She's board-certified executive corporate leadership coach, and she's the founder and executive director of Us Foundation. Uh, and today, I want to show people that even though she is not in the healing arts, uh, so to speak, traditionally, she has done so much for healing, and this gives people an opportunity that don't go into medicine and healing to show that, that health and healing are always an important aspect of everything we do. And as we go through her uh, story, you're going to see many great aspects of this wonderful person. So I would like to introduce everyone to my dear friend and colleague, Marilyn Tam. Welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Looking forward to our show. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, Marilyn. Thank you for honoring our community here in YHTV. Mm, my pleasure. So normally, Marilyn, as the medical guide, I usually tell our global viewers the path that I want to take. And I want to uh, take a little bit of a different path with you. We want to start with your beginnings, your early years, up through college maybe, and then we'll get into your, your world of entrepreneurship and business will cover some of your humanitarian work. We'll talk about uh, some of the books you've written as an author and anything else that may come up along the way. But I want to weave into that the part of you that is definitely outstanding. And that's the part where your consciousness is always about health and healing, no matter what. Uh, so I I would like to start out maybe you telling our audience about your your earliest uh, beginnings. Well, thank you, Glenn. Every aspect of a life is about health and healing because if we are not in a mentally healthy place, our bodies suffer and it, it's all interconnected. And of course, when our bodies are not well, oftentimes our emotional and, and, and mental health suffers also. And when I was born, I was born in Hong Kong, second daughter in a very traditional Chinese family. And 
if you know anything about Chinese families, that's not really a very good place to be. Um, <laughs> I think Christina can laugh because she knows a little bit about that, obviously, because we're both from Hong Kong, amazingly enough. Uh, my family, Christina, was very traditional. Um, boys were everything and, and girls were worth less than dirt. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was born, being the second girl, I was really less than dirt. And it didn't help that my birth was followed very quickly by the birth of three younger brothers. So by the time I was seven, I was given up by my family to my aunt and uncle who lived in the country um, because they had no children, hoping that they would take me on and that they would, my family, my birth family would be rid of me. So to, to kind of explain why self-esteem and positive reinforcement were not two things that were given freely to me as a child. Um, physical and mental abuse was, in fact, uh, the, the, the norm of the day. So going to my aunt and uncle's place, I got into a different world of, of understanding what was possible. I made friends with my my aunt's maid's adopted daughter, you can tell how far down the totem pole that was, um, and learn about child labor. That's, in fact, what I did for the next few years. But it was great, in a way, because I was not told I was worthless, and I, um, nobody was beating me. But that's still not a, a good way to do life, but, but that's all I knew. And I just want to want everybody to understand that wherever you come from, wherever you go, there's an opportunity for us to make choices. For me, the choice was to really accept where I was and make the best of it. And sometimes we're in, uh, not in control, especially when I was only seven years old, of what my world looks like every day. But I can still make small choices of what I can be connected to. And one thing I always connected to was spirit, something bigger and more powerful than even the people around me who were treating me or mistreating me whichever way that they chose. When I was 11, my aunt and uncle had their firstborn, a boy, which was obviously <laughs> not a pleasant moment for me because I was then shipped back to my, my birth family because they didn't need me anymore because they had their own child, a boy. So to understand about a rejection, I really got that first firsthand. But then here comes some good news. I went to, my family was not, not poor. And most people assume because of this background that my family was, actually my family is quite wealthy. It's not a matter of not having the money to take care of another child. It was not wanting to, not wanting to take, take care of another girl. Um, so I went to a wonderful school and made friends with my little classmate, Rebecca, who inspired me tremendously. In fact, created my life purpose for me because I found out in her life, it was much worse than mine. Her whole family of five, father, mother, brother and sister, and herself all lived in a single room and they shared a bathroom and a kitchen with two more families. And oftentimes they did not even have enough food to eat. I was filled with outrage when I found this out because I didn't understand why two working parents working full time could not afford to feed themselves and take care of their kids. It didn't make sense. It wasn't right. So I made a resolve then at 11 years old that I was going to make a difference in people's life, people like Rebecca's. I was still 11. So, mm -hmm. but taking away from that, I, I got an understanding of compassion, of comparison and righteousness. And from there, I, I formed my life path, which is to make a positive difference, alluding to what Glenn said earlier, and recognizing that health in all aspects comes back into every aspect of life. Because now, by this time, I've experienced both mental and physical um, health issues, but mostly inflicted by other people on me. But understanding that, that gave me the drive that I was going to make it better for other people in the world. And with that, I got very motivated in school, didn't finish high school, came to the United States by myself halfway through high school to go to college. I got early acceptance in school. And from there, the rest, as they can say, is history. I did my undergraduate, did my grad school, and went to work, always remembering that I can make a difference in other people's lives. And there are people who need 
my support, what I can do, what I can offer in more ways than what I have received myself. And so I became eventually the vice president at Nike, uh, president of Reebok Apparel Products and Retail Group, and CEO of Aveda, and started several of my own companies. But never forgetting the humanitarian side of my life, I started my own foundation in 1996, as foundation, which is still going, helping other people in the world, doing what I can, not know, not saying that I know how to help, but how can I connect with others so that we all can rise together? Because if anybody else is hurting, I too am hurting because we all connected. So I feel grateful that now I have a, a, a world where I can give, share, and um, give back some of the things that I've gained through life. Wow. Fantastic story. Uh I want to say thank you for sharing that with us. Very personal and uh, very poignant for all of us. It it does. It's very inspirational knowing that uh, everyone has an opportunity. I want to ask you, in in your second book, "Living the Life of Your Dreams," just as a quick aside, do you remember any specific dream that you had that, or dreams that led you to this life? Or was it those experiences you spoke about? Was there a dream? I think I, I, my day and nights were really merged because when, as a child, I was, I escaped a lot from my physical world because of how hard the conditions were. So my dream world merged between night and day. So I don't think I can make a distinction between my night dreams and my day dreams. My, my dream really was just to make a difference because I just want to ease the suffering because I feel like in easing the suffering of others, I ease the suffering in myself. So that was really my driving force all the time. When you, when you started in college, uh, what was your, what was your major? Foods and nutrition. <laughs> I, <laughs> Which, which got you ready for Nike and Reebok and Aveda? <laughs> what made you What made you get have an insight that nutrition was so important already in your career? When I was young, I mean, this is the day of the era of black and white TV. We didn't have internet or anything when I, I grew up a long time ago, and and we didn't have the internet. We only had black and white TV. And my big reference point, and I think this is why I talk to people about how important it is to recognize where you're focusing your energy on. Because my reference point was not TV. My reference point was books. And the books and the magazines I read most of all was National Geographic. And National Geographic had a lot of feature articles on Africa. And I could see all these people who were having to, to scrape for food and, and had a very uh, difficult life in my perspective. So that motivated me to say, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. I'm going to go to Africa and teach them how to feed themselves and run the country. So <laughs> I was 11 years old. What do I know? I didn't think it was impossible. So that's what I did my undergraduate. I had a, actually a double major, food and nutrition and economics, because I was determined to learn all the things I needed to learn so that I can help others. And in this case, my focus was in Africa. So First, I have to teach them about food, so I better learn about it first. And I also understood how important food was because that's really what nourish, nourishes us in all aspects. So food and nutrition and economics was what I, my, my master's was in economics. So I kind of shifted from understanding about the nutritional part and um, to understanding the financial part. So the two came together so that I could truly make a difference in the world. It seems it seems like um, part of you has kept that eleven year old attitude with everything that you uh, focus on and that comes up in front of you as a potential obstacle. You just immediately say, "I could do that," and there <laughs> there are no boundaries to it. That's great, and, and that's really what I think we all can remember is that. We can look at an obstacle and say, oh, this is going to stop me from doing what I want. Or I say, okay, here's an obstacle. How can I either go through it or around it? But some way I can get through it because my life purpose is bigger than this obstacle. I have a bigger reason for living than this, whatever it is that's hindering me right now. So in thinking about uh, Africa and doing things for the world, you, you decided that you had an idea of what you wanted to do. And, and I think you were met with rejection pretty quickly, weren't you? <laughs> I didn't make it 
through school with, with that. Um, before I graduated, I, of course, applied to WHO, World Health Organization, which is where my focus ever since I was 11 years old and from National Geographic was that that's the people that have worked in Africa. So <laughs> <laughs> I applied to them to for a job and I was uh, rejected immediately because they basically said that we need 10 years experience before we hire anybody because of course, these people were then sent out to different parts of the world to do work without a lot of supervision. But being under 21 and with no experience in, in doing work of my age, of course, I had a lot of jobs like working at A&W in the hospital. That's not going to quite qualify. Uh, and that was just to you know keep me in, in shoes and, and, and warm clothes and food. Um, that made me think and pull back and understand even though I was rejected, there are other options. I had, could pull back and say, wait, what do I have and what what do I want? Is it just to work for WHO or is it to make a positive difference in the world? And are there other ways of doing it? And what assets do I have? I still have my education. I still have my burning desire to make a difference. How else can I do it? And so that shifted my life path of what I was going to do next. And everybody has an option to do that too, to, to hold on to your life purpose and maybe adapt what the circumstances are around you to another way of, of fulfilling your destiny. So you moved into the corporate world. You know, I can't take any, <laughs> any blame or credit for it. It, it. That's really what happened because I went to interview for a job because I, I never thought about having to apply for another job because that was my dream is to work for WHO. And it never occurred to me they would say no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in applying, applying for the first place I just applied to uh, for interview was uh, – a company that came onto the campus is May Department Stores, which is now part of the Macy's group. And they impressed me very much because they told me something that was revolutionary for me at the time, that they they promoted and graded people based on merit, which was amazing thought to me because to this point, you have to remember who who I am and was at the time. I was an immigrant, I was a woman. I was of color. I was smaller than I am now physically and very young. So about any aspect of life that I can be discriminated against or anybody can be discriminated against, I have been by that point. And to have a company say, oh, we're going to grade you based on what you can do. What a concept. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I looked into that more and it brought me back to thinking about Maybe I don't have to go that far and that wide to make a difference. Maybe I can make a difference right here, right where I am. And I delved into the company more, realized that they have a big consciousness about the community. They obviously respected each person for who they are, not, not for their color, their gender, their economic status or whatever. So there were a lot of good things they were doing that re resonated with me. And one other thing that the younger people who are listening in would, would find funny was that they had the first point of sale computers. Wow. And which meant that at every, every moment and every day, how each person performed could be tracked. And I loved that concept because, <laughs> you know, it was based on whatever I did or what I didn't do. And I don't mind being greater than that. I just didn't want to be greater than something I couldn't control. You know, like my skin color or like my gender, you know, so it, it was just a, a wonderful way, a story for myself to remind myself, you can make a difference right now with what you have. You don't have to wait till you get 10 years experience or go to Africa. You can do something right now, right here where you are. So now you're in the corporate world and you get into the world of sports and athletics and apparel uh, with a number of corporations. But again, uh, because this is Magical Medical Tour, I don't want to focus too much on the corporations, but the healing and health aspects of things that you noticed within the corporations, both as a, a woman and a minority and someone of color, and also uh, the 
experiences of what you saw in terms of labor, child labor? What are tell us some of the things that you noticed that you helped to change? I never forgot where I came from. That I did come from a place where I learned about child labor, as you say, Glenn, um, where people are not given the opportunity, even though the little that I was given, to make a ch change in my life. And so wherever I was, not only did I try to make a, a difference in the immediate environment where I was working, I also tried to make a difference in the people that we were connecting with. Um, when I was in Reebok, one thing I knew at that point was that I was able to influence how the factories and the, the, the conditions in the factories and what the laborers were getting or not getting in terms of treatment there. So working with, with our, well, suppliers in all different countries in the world, I started a program um, on working with them to improve the labor standards in those countries, in the apparel workers, which is where I was working at the time. So we improve lighting, ventilation, sounds very small, but phenomenally difficult when you think about working in places without adequate lighting for them to work, injuries, eyesight issues, in, in, inadequate ventilation, which meant they was breathing toxic fumes, as well as all the cotton dust and all the synthetic dust and, and, and fumes that were coming up and not getting break time, not being able to just do basic bodily processes when they need to, um, getting enough food, um, how many hours they were working, and, and pay, and what age they started. So these are all issues I work with, and we were able to eventually get the whole industry into upgrading the standards. Now, this didn't take a year or two. It took many years, but it came from my commitment and understanding what it felt like to be on the other side. and. I would have to say that not too many people have had that privilege of being on both sides and understanding what it means to be the, to be the person who is working, making three, three for $10 t-shirts. Can you imagine how much the person who's making that t-shirt is making an hour? If you're buying three t-shirts for $10, it's mind-numbing when you factor in the raw materials, the shipping costs, the packaging, and everything else. And to, to this country and still had a three for ten dollars, it's it's very difficult for me even to accept that thought. And so that was part of the things that I've done is is to be able to shift that consciousness. We did the same thing when I was an evader in um, in the Amazon and South America, because there the issue was different but the same. Their issue was that a lot of our products come from there. First, it was um, rubber. So the rainforest cut down and they put in planted rubber trees. And of course, they said clear cut plant rubber trees. And then new materials came up. Rubber was not as important. So all the people who've lost their livelihood from the rainforest have now lost their livelihood again. And now that the rubber forests are no longer as needed. So what happens then? Then the mass hamburger places went down and leveled more rainforest because once the rainforest is leveled, the topsoil goes away and the forest is rendered basically unusable. I mean, it's very, there, even though we think it's so lush, the topsoil in the rainforest is very, very thin. The rains wash it away. And so then they level more rainforest to make cows and to make hamburgers for us. And not for me, I'm a vegan, but you know, for us in general. Um, <coughs> And then that became an issue where these people were not needed again. And so as the CEO of Aveda, we went back then and worked with them on how to replant native plants so that they have something that they were used to and they understood. And this was where we could get the color, the dyes that they use traditionally for face paint, for body paint. We can now use those for color cosmetics, for hair dyes, for all the things that we in the modern world use. So it's coming back the whole full cycle of bringing people back to where they know they have a life. But that also comes from understanding that mental and physical health is conjoined. And 
it would be better if people less mass produce hamburgers too health wise, as you know, which is we just have too much saturated fat and too many processed foods and, and all the things that you know. I'm sure you talk about a lot of shows, and I can get very excited about that too, because as you know, I, I've also had a health clinic because my dedication to health and understanding about health has transcended my whole life. And I believe that's really one reason why I've maintained my health throughout all the stresses and, and, and different challenges I've gone through in my life. Uh, boy, part of your story uh, just gets more amazing. And I love the fact that you considered it a privilege uh, to be on both sides of the issue. But there were many things you did and inspired all along the way and were inspired by many people. I know there was a story with a, a young boy, I think, uh, that you met who was doing great work in another country. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, the story that I'm talking about? Ibak Maxi, yes. Um, this was a young boy, um, 13 years old. 13 years old, he was 12 years old, well, actually almost 13 years old, he was 12. Um, <clears throat> he was a carpet weaver. His family in Pakistan sold him when he was five years old to a carpet factory. I'm not saying his family was, it, it was out of just de desperation. They just didn't have enough money just for the basics of life. So they sold him. And he became a bond, what they call bonded labor, which basically is a nice term for a slave. So from five years old, he was chained to a loom in uh, the carpet factory. And for about 14 hours a day, he wove carpets. All these exotic, beautiful carpets, most of them you have to make sure how they're made before you purchase them. Because many of them, I would say most of them, are made with very difficult under very difficult conditions by very young hands and eyes because the fine weave and the fine detail can only be done by a young person. And when he was 10 years old, he escaped um, from, the, from the factory because on the books in Pakistan, there are actually laws against bonded labor on the books, as I say, because they're not really... Uh, enforced. He ran off and there's a, <clears throat> a, a shelter for bonded labor children. And he went there, but he didn't stop there. He kept going back and getting other little children, boys and girls, out of the system. And he was um, doing this for about two years when we heard about him. And this was when I was in the Reebok Human Rights Foundation. And we wanted to make an award for him, because that's one thing what we did every year, we awarded youth throughout the world who by nonviolent means made a difference in their world. And so, of course, we wanted to honor Ibak for what he did. Um, his body of work, obviously, is not as strong as somebody who is closer to 30, but he was such an impressive and inspiring young man. We decided to create a new award called Youth in Action Award for him and brought him over to this country and took him to the doctors to see what we can do because he was what we found out later was called an induced dwarf. His nutrition and his uh, ability to move and just even have daylight and, and, and um, good air has so been so restricted that he became an induced dwarf and he was going to be very small for the rest of his life. But we did help his nutrition the best we could as far as helping him adjust and do all that and also introduce him to um, a school, a university there, because he his mission was that he wanted to become a lawyer so he can go back and fight for the other children. And so we got him set up the best we could and and with award, which would give him, we thought, some kind of protection against being um, harassed by the people in his area, uh, because obviously the carpet weaving factories and all those other people were not particularly interested in getting their visibility uh, to the world in the way it was, which is that they were employing slave children. He went back to the country. He was going to school, and he already we already had a scholarship for his college in America, and we became friends. 
But one day when he was riding his bicycle to his grandmother's house, he was machine gunned down. And of course, nobody ever found out who, but we all know who. It was some of the factory owners. And so from there, we have inspired another young boy in Canada who, since that, Craig Kuberger, who has... He, who read it when he was 12, and he got so inspired that he started a program in Canada, which now is national in Canada, um, to ban all goods made by child labor. And his organization is called Free the Children, and now it's in 30-something countries. So the ripple effect of what every person does, you may think it goes nowhere, Everybody makes a difference. And now from this one little young boy who at 12 was martyred, 30-something countries in the world have schools and help from, from other children because this organization, Free the Children, is run primarily by children so that they can all have a better life and have more awareness of the globalization of our world and how everything we do impacts everybody else. The physical as well as mental health of every person is at stake. So it's a, it's a great story, and I'm happy to have played a little part in it. Yes, you certainly have, and you've played parts in so many of these stories. We've talked about your corporate work, and there's so many other things you've done for women. In fact, uh, I think... This is an honor for us because the country of Greece actually recognized you uh, for the work you've done and put your image on a stamp. Isn't that correct? Yes. It's it's, it's actually funny to me because you asked me earlier what I dreamed about when I was a child. I definitely did not dream I was ever going to be on a stamp. (laughs) And and I think that's really the, the magic of it all is that if you just allow the world to happen and just do what you can do the best you can, um, Greece ordered my business as and humanitarian work and, and gave me the uh, this award, um, Artemis Award, and I was ordered in Greece, in, in Athens, as well as in Delos, which is the sacred island for them, for where Artemis was from. And so I really feel very grateful that I'm ordered this way even before I'm dead, because as you know, or maybe you don't know, in our country, United States, you can only be on a stamp if you're dead. (laughs) So I'm glad that I got the reward from another country. (laughs) That's great for us. Uh, We've never interviewed anyone on a stamp. (laughs) It'll be quite difficult. So we've broken all barriers here, just like you have. I want to talk about your humanitarian work. Uh, I'd like to briefly go into Us Foundation, Vitamin Angels, Airline Ambassadors, and I want to save some time for you as an author. So talk to us a little bit about the Us Foundation and the Angels and the Ambassadors. Us Foundation came about a long time ago in my head. This is a dream I had because it came from a frustration that I had with nonprofits. I find in doing all my work throughout the years with nonprofits, there was one thing that really bothered me about them. And this is what I call the scarcity mentality. It seems like that nonprofits have this issue around sharing. They have this concept that if they share, they get less. So they don't work with other nonprofits. They always think that if I share my information or my client list with you or we try to collaborate, then you get my funding from the people I know and I'll have less. They never think that, oh, if we work together, we have more. And and this is something that corporations understand and what I call the war complex really understands. That's how they get all the bills passed. That's how the pharmaceuticals get their their bills passed. They band together and they, they make things happen that benefits them and a lot of times not the common good. So I want to shift that consciousness in a nonprofit world. So I, when I created my foundation in 1996, I called it Us Foundation because the world is really about us. There's no them. And so that's how it started. And 
our whole premise and what we do as foundation is that we don't need the glory or the fame because we really appear about doing good. So our name almost never appears in any work we do because we just help facilitate, connect people, introduce them, and give the strategy to make things happen. So whoever the nonprofit or nonprofits are, they can get the funding and everything else. But hopefully in this process, they understand that together we're more than each group or each person alone. So with that, we did work with um, airline ambassadors in a lot of places around the world. Some in this country, like the Katrina disasters um, in Haiti, in Japan, when we had the, the the nuclear meltdown and the tsunami over in Sri Lanka and Thailand and that area. So each major disaster, we would help connect the people necessary or the organizations necessary. Some people might have uh, mobile uh, geodesic domes that they can ship over to make instant clinics or almost instant clinics. Some people, uh, airline ambassadors, of course, have the resources on planes and volunteers who can fly there with no uh, cost, um, all kinds of ways to, to bring people together so that we have a bigger us than if each person or each group did it on their own. And of course, my big passion is working with vitamin angels because it goes back to something I'm so passionate about, the health of children. Because if our children are not healthy, we will not have healthy adults. But in many countries in the world, children do not even get enough vitamin A between birth and 10 years old. And as you know, Glenn, being a doctor, if we don't have enough vitamin A between birth and 10 years old, cognitive processes don't develop properly, as well as the vision is impaired. And I've worked with children who have gone blind because they didn't get enough vitamin A. And this is heartbreaking because it only costs in the vitamin angels, this organization that um, serves over 40 plus countries in the world, the poorest countries in the world, and, and donate and, and administer vitamin A to children. And it only takes two doses a year for three years to make this stop. And it only costs 25 cents a child per year. And how many lattes that you can get, you know, for that <laughs> amount of money, you know? So it's, it's understanding how much difference we can make. And I just want people to know, you don't have to wait till you're rich and famous to do this. You can do it now with a small donation or just to even smile at somebody you don't know who looks like they're having a bad day. We can make an impact in the world and improve the health and well-being of somebody around you so easily. Hmm. Uh, so now we're going to move a little bit into you being an author. Uh, and although, the, you know, they all, they're all connected. I mean, you're all mm -hmm. of these things at all times anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's easy when people interview authors and here's your book and here's your other book and everything else and they and then they go into talking about the book but i want to talk for just a moment or two about how difficult it might be to be an author it's not just a simple thing i think i'll write a book and here it is and then it goes out it's it's not an easy task is it it's i i just kind of laugh at this because every everybody who's who's ever had a dream of some kind of their lives feel like they have a book in them. And yet not everybody writes a book because when they really get down to it, it's not, as you say, as easy as it seems because somehow it has to hang together. Somehow it has to have a purpose and a, and a way of delivering. But more than that, how do you get that to the world then, as you say, how does it get from your computer into reaching the people that you want to share your story with, or hopefully a, a higher purpose with. And, and so having the vision or mission or a, a, a urge to, to share is the first step in a many step process of getting there. I don't want to discourage anybody from doing this because everybody should be able to share their story if, if, if they have one that they want to share. And now in today's day and age, it is easier you may not reach as many people as you want, but it's easier because there's something called Google <laughs> and Amazon <laughs> where you can put out your information and it can get shared to at least some level. So do what you need to do to get your message across. I want everybody to understand, yes, you have a message in you. How do you condense it in a way that can be 
heard and seen and read by others. That's really is the trick. And so that's something that I do share with people and, and help them uh, offer them resources on. And there's a, a part on my website um, called resources, and there's some information there. My website is marylandtam.com, so it's quite easy, marylandtam.com. If you go to the resources, uh, there's more uh, information there for you to uh, start your book if you want. But it basically comes back down to it has to be a real passion and a dedication because it does take a lot of time. And most people do not get rich by writing a book. <laughs> I would say 99% of the people don't make money writing a book, but it has to be something you believe in. The thing I like about uh, all of your books, and we'll, we'll mention two of them briefly and then get into your latest uh, book, uh, is that you not only come up with a, a concept but you come up with, uh, you tell people principles around the contract, uh, the concept, and also you give strategies to achieve uh, the goals of the concept. Your first book, How to Use What You've Got to Get What You Want, a great title, already in six languages, I must say. Uh, give us uh, a brief moment on that book. The reason I write, why I wrote that first book was um, throughout the years, people would ask me gentle questions, probing questions, because ultimately they really want to know is how can you, underneath the, the, the nice words of where'd you go to school, you know, where's your family, and, and uh, you know, gentle questions around that. But really what they were saying was how can you, foreign-born person, a woman of color, get to be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It doesn't, you don't look like the right profile. <laughs> and what I write, why I wrote the book was so that people to understand that you can use whatever you've got to achieve your dream. And in my case, it was just showing them, as Glenn, as you said, the principles and the strategy to achieve your dream. And my dream is maybe different from somebody else's, but we all have a dream. And so my principles and strategy is, is generic for people so that they can apply it to their specific situation. And and it, would make, it made it easier. So when people ask that question or those questions about basically how did you make it, you don't look like the right person to have made it. Um, I can just say, here, read this book. <laughs> Great. <laughs> so they so can you, make it on their own. <laughs> you wrote it so you didn't have to converse with people. <laughs> my, my only question about that is, is it in audio format so Segovia can read it? <laughs> oh, that w It will be soon. But my latest book um, is is uh, is in audio format. It's going to come out in the next couple, next few weeks. So We're going but to that's get the first into one, that. Though. We're going to get into your latest book. But I want to talk about your second book, Living the Life of Your Dreams, which we alluded to earlier in our conversation. This was, uh, it won an award for ebook of the year in 2011 in the inspiration and visionary category. And I think that's, that's kind of a description of, of your life. You're inspirational and a visionary. What was Living the Life of Your Dreams about? After writing, um, how to use what you've got to get what you want in 2003. Um, I thought I've shared enough. I'm done. I, 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 I wrote it just really as a way of giving back. And then I realized that in my own life, I got to a place where I was running my health clinic, which is integrated health clinic down in Carlsbad, which is about three and a half hours away from where I live. And I was spending the week down there and coming back on the weekends and going down for the week, just enough to change my clothes here and go back down and, and really making a big difference in people's lives, mental, health, physical lives and everything else. But it was not until one close to Christmas when my sister called me from Vancouver, BC, and she said, I want to come down for Christmas. And I heard myself say to her, oh, I'm too tired. I don't think I can have Christmas this year. In fact, I'm going to cancel Christmas altogether. <laughs> and that's when I realized my own balance, my own life balance, my own mental and physical health was out of whack. 
because I was so dedicated towards helping others, I had forgotten about my own personal health. And in that place, I realized that I needed the reminder and hopefully I could do something in a small handbook form because living in your life with dreams is a small handbook um, that can help other people remember that there's something called dynamic balance. It changes with your life circumstances, with whatever is going on around you at the time, but that you always have to remember your life purpose and to keep that balance that is constantly changing. So that book is really um, a small reminder and some um, inspiration and tips on how you can rebalance your life. And it, it, it is the spearhead to my next book, but we can talk about that later. Well, we can actually talk about that now. And I'm interested in the concept of there's so many things that you uh, do in your world, in your body, mind, and spirit world. You could have chosen a book on compassion or gratitude or any number of things, but you chose something on happiness. And and I know that in your life, there have been some influences by people, uh, one in one who is related to Costa Rica and one related to Bhutan. Both of these countries are very interested, appreciative, and organized around happiness. One is Robert Mueller and the other is the Queen Mother of Bhutan. Uh, those people, did they influence you to write this book, The Happiness Choice? Well, it, it's like my whole life came together for this book. Um, after I wrote Living the Life of Your Dreams, my good friend, um, Joan Boroshenko, you also know, she's a mm-hmm. neuropsychoimmunologist. I think mm-hmm. I said that right. Um, she's um, She wrote her book um, called Fried, Why You Burn Out and How to Revive. And she sent me that book at the same time when I was just finishing Living the Life of Your Dreams. And I realized that all of a sudden, we're talking about the same thing. We're converging on a point of how the world shifts based on what happens in ourselves, which is we need dynamic balance or we're going to burn out. When we burn out, everything goes wrong. And as you know, as a, a medical person, health and well-being comes from, from having the dynamic balance in, in the body as well as in the mind. So in this conversation, I sent my book to Joan and we decided wouldn't it be great for us to write a book together, pulling all these uh, aspects together. So. We talked about writing the book, and then as we got more into it, she realized that she had a contract for another book in 2014, which precluded her from writing this book with me. But she wrote the foreword, and she wrote um, gave me a lot of her stories. But coming to the title and the purpose behind the book, what I realized was that ultimately what we all want, including in our constitution, is happiness. Everybody, whether they are the richest person in the world or the poorest, there are moments of happiness and there are moments of unhappiness. And we're all striving, whichever way we want, whichever way we know how, for happiness. And so you mentioned Dr. Robert Mueller and Bhutan. And the two actually comes together because in 2003 or four was my first trip to Bhutan. And I told uh, uh, Dr. Mueller about this. He sort of a, was a mentor to me. And he said, you're going to Bhutan. You must talk to the king. And I laughed because I didn't think I was going to be able to talk to the king, obviously. And I said, why would I want to talk to the king? He says, because they have growth national happiness, which I actually knew about because I wrote an article that year on happiness for a publication in Canada, a Scarlet magazine around happiness. And I had researched gross national happiness, which is how Bhutan measures their well-being of their country instead of how most countries measure, including our own, which of GDP uh, is the amount of products we could create, um, consumption and production instead of the internal more... Um, intangible way of measuring happiness, uh, of wearing well-being, which is happiness. And so I went to Bhutan with intention, since he told me to, to share this vision 
he had of declaring uh, International Day of Happiness in the United Nations because Dr. Mueller was associate prior to his retirement was the assistant secretary general for the United Nations. So he saw that as a platform to share with the whole world the need and the power of happiness. So even though I didn't think I could meet the king, I had prepared enough information and a whole dossier in case I would just by chance run into the king. I didn't run into the king right away, but on my flight into Bhutan, I met with the Minister of Home and Culture, um, uh, Lin Po Jigmi Thinley, and he was very intrigued by the idea. And so now, this many years later, this year, 2013, United Nations on March 20th declared it the International Day of Happiness. So it comes a long way around to finally making that happen. And um, the Queen Mother of Bhutan, who at the time when I met her was the queen, um, since then uh, her husband, the king, had abdicated in favor of of their son, who is now king. She, um, she has always impressed me as somebody who did so much good I would almost say in spite of her position, because she'll go and work in the countryside with the people and to reach out to um, people who had less, especially children and people who are otherwise disadvantaged to bring them more happiness, because that's really the role of life. So all these were in my head when I wrote the book and I pulled it all together because I brought together experts because everybody has a different aspects of happiness, whether it's your physical health, as you, where you spend most of your time, physical and mental health, or your relationships, or uh, your amount of money that a person has, or how they earn it, um, a spiritual life, and your community life. Each one of these areas are aspects of happiness. And so that's the name of my book, the happiness choice, because we choose each one of these. And the subtitle of the book is The Five Decisions That Can Take You From Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Because I'm not trying to tell you where you want to be. I just want to help you determine your life purpose, because we all have one, even though the media and everything outside of us convince us so much and so much at a time as what is really the the reasons for making you happy. We really know inside what really it, is calling to us if we just listen and quiet down and hear that voice. So from that place of knowing your life purpose, then you can make the allocation in each one of these areas, physical, health, relationships, spiritual, money, and community, how you work with these areas to come together to happiness. So in a way, I, I, I'm living what you're talking about on your show all the time, coming to the health, because health balances all these things. And when we are healthy in mind and spirit and body, we are truly happy. You know, that's true. I, and I was thinking about your book, and, and I was ch- thinking about this um, interview and, and combining happiness and health. And I, I was picturing that happiness turned out to be a virus. And in mm-hmm. your book... You even have an area where where book clubs can get together and have certain discussions about your book. And I started thinking, wow, if this was virus and book clubs were getting together, we'd be spreading happiness. It would go viral on us here. I, from your <laughs> lips, let's make it happen. I'd like to yeah. show you a copy of the, the uh, cover of the book. Sure. It's beautiful. You, are you showing it to us? Yes. Can you see yes. it? Yes. Yes. Perfect. Go. Yeah. <laughs> the happiness choice. There's That's a, right. There's a there's a little part in there that I really love. Uh, it's called wasabi love. <laughs> mm. you have? Uh, can you tell us one moment about that? It's actually wabi sabi love. It wabi like sabi. <laughs> I mean, wasabi love sounds great too because that's kind of hot and spicy. <laughs> but wabi sabi is actually a Japanese term for loving the imperfection in something. Um, a lot of us go through and say, we'll be happy when. And that becomes a situation when we're never happy now because we're waiting for the when and the when keeps shifting. Um, 
And wabi-sabi is, is a term that they use, especially in art in Japan, which is how it started, where they would say, like, if they have a f- hand-fired pottery and there's a crack in it, they will highlight the crack with a light or, or on a f- feature to say, look, isn't this beautiful? This is what happened when something was made and, and this spontaneously appeared. And it teaches us, and that also, by the way, is uh, Ariel Ford's um, uh, topic called Wabi Sabi Love. And it is recognizing, acknowledging not only the perfection in the people in ourselves, as well as the people we love, but appreciating them for that very thing. Because when we are in a place of understanding, that, that's really what makes them special. That's what makes them who they are. And not to say, I wish there's change because then they'll be perfect. Or I wish I would do this other thing because then I'll be perfect. Sometimes our quirks, we can laugh at them and embrace them. And maybe from that place, we may change. But it's not from just beating ourselves over the head or beating somebody else over the head and saying, this is what's wrong with you. We don't. Nobody learns well from being beat. It doesn't go down to the the deepest part of us where transformation really happens and truly it doesn't make anybody else happy either when they're told that they're bad and miserable <laughs> that's great we're, we're speaking with marilyn tam uh international speaker consultant humanitarian and author and each week uh marilyn we ask our special guests for a health tip something that you have found on your amazing journey that uh, you might want to share with our global viewers. Do you have something for us today? Absolutely. You know, in my own life, as well as my clinic, and in, in all the consulting and speaking I do around the world, I find the one thing that's the biggest hindrance to happiness and to health is stress. Um, in researching my book, the, the The Happiness Choice, we found that over 80% of all physical health issues come from stress. And so I would say any way you can reduce stress, it's going to really be helpful for your health. But that's a nice term to say, oh, reduce stress when we're feeling like the world is coming, crashing down around us. So the the small things we can do to make a change is to say, stop whatever is making you panic at the moment. Of course, if you're in a house burning down, run out, (laughs) then you do this. But I mean, for most times, we don't, encounter a situation that is dire is more something that's weighing on us um something that is a challenge and a bigger picture is to stop for a moment and ask ourselves can i take a deep breath now and then go ahead and take a deep breath and then say can i take another do it again after about three or four then say okay can i take a moment to just move my shoulders Take another deep breath and let all the air out and say, am I going to die from this? And most of the time, you're not going to die this moment from whatever it is. Then give yourself enough space to say, what's most important to me? Is it solving this issue or is this just something urgent but not critical? So in the process of Distancing yourself a little bit from whatever is stressing you out so much. Solutions will come. Your body will lower, lower to back to a level of a little bit more normal. The cortisol will go down. And you maybe have a chance to really resolve whatever, whatever it is that's bothering you so much in a way that's more beneficial than if you're just running, running, running mentally as well as physically in some ways to try to solve something that's overtaking your mind and your, your body. Just relieving that stress helps you in so many ways. Besides, you look better and you live longer too when you're not stressed out. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's a great health tip. Uh, before we go, I wanted to mention your radio show, you have your own special radio show on happiness. Did you want to tell our viewers about that for a second? I have a, a radio show, and also I have a blog on Huffington Post. Huh. Um, on both of those, um, 
on my radio show, if you just go on FMG Network, so F as in fun, M as in money, G as in good, fun, money, good network. <laughs> and I have a radio show there. It's broadcast um, every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Um, Pacific time. But then after that, it's available anytime for downloads um, to listen whenever you please. And every week, it's a short show. It's only about 15 to 20 minutes each. I interview an expert on first their secrets to happiness for themselves. And then the following week, I interview them on their secrets for you so that you too can be happy. And because all the experts come from all aspects of life, from health, from uh, from physical health, from relationships, from money issues, from re- uh, from community, and from spirit, each one of those will will res- um, help you in your own world. And in um, on Huffington Post, I have a blog that in which I, I share uh, from different aspects of my life both from success and and as well as from mental and and spiritual health. And that's under GPS for the soul. But if you just type in my name, Marilyn Tam, um, it'll come up um, all the different posts I have. So Huffington Post for my blog and, um, of course, uh, my radio show. But you can find it all on my website and and much more information. And that's MarilynTam.com. MarilynTam.com, and there's tips on there. There's free gifts of different things. In fact, you're on there, Glenn, with, with, with some, you have some of your own gifts and, and tips, too. Beautiful. Christina. Yes, sir. I've been sitting <laughs> I, quietly over here, just absorbing everything. <laughs> uh, there is so much to absorb. And the thing, and the thing about Marilyn is we look at her whole story, and, and it's a lifetime filled with things, and yet... She's still going strong. That's fantastic. You know, it's not over yet. There's a lot more. <laughs> oh, no. Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> you can feel it. You can feel the energy coming from her. Marilyn, thank you so much. You've been so inspirational. It, it's like I, I don't feel like we're we're quite done yet. <laughs> Just like I, her. Thank you. Well, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for your show because you're helping so many people get inspired to take a responsibility for their health and that it's possible to be healthy, whatever state you have, you know, because there are people that I've worked with who are in a wheelchair, who are healthy. Just because they are incapacitated in some way physically doesn't mean they can't be healthy overall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yes. And on those words, I would like to say how grateful I am to our special guest, Marilyn Tam, for sharing her wisdom and expertise with our global audience. I would also like to take this time to thank all of my teachers and my healers for allowing me to go on my journey. And I look forward to getting together uh, again next week on Magical Medical Tour as Christina and I explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, thank you so much, Marilyn Tam, for your great uh, inspiration and visions for our planet. And until next meeting, I wish you all optimal health. (laughs) Thank Thank you you. so much, Marilyn, and to you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for another wonderful segment here. I would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific Time, 1.30 Eastern Time. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. You can also contact Dr. Glenn Woolman at myyogahub.com forward slash gwoolman or follow him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman and, of course, through his own site, glennwoolman.com, where we do encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Until we meet again, namaste. <laughs> Good. I'm All glad. right, now, now can I ask questions, Glenn? <laughs> jabber, jabber, jabber. <laughs> okay, one maybe. Oh, my goodness. What a full show. And I, uh, we're not done yet, are we? 
Oh, it was fun. I hope that <laughs> did you get what you wanted, Glenn? I got exactly what I wanted. Oh, now, now I have to bring Marilyn on my show so I can get what I want, right? <laughs> First reader book, how to use what you've got to get what you want. <laughs> and, and then so you will get her on be my able show. to live, live the life of your dream. And then once you get her on the show, you will have made the choice for happiness. <laughs> wow. Marilyn, you go, girl. <laughs> Glenn, I thought it was very funny. You call it wasabi love. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would like that. Oh, that's good. 